I'm Carlos Frias, and this is Sundial. Andy Gomez spent a career trying to explain Cuba to adults. He dedicated most of his life to it. At the University of Miami, he taught the history of the Cuban Revolution. He taught classes about what life might be in Cuba after Castro. And he co-founded the Institute for Cuban and Cuban-American Studies. It was a way to preserve the history of the Cuban experience before and after the revolution fractured it. But one question from one specific person forced him to think differently about how to talk about Cuba. It was one of his four grandsons who asked him, Abuelo, why did you leave Cuba? That became the thesis. Now, that sounds too scholarly, uh, even for a lifetime scholar. Let's call it the heart of a new children's book he's written to address that question. His new book, Lessons from Abuelo, is more than a history of Cuba for kids. It's a conversation starter an outline of Cuban history. The book is meant to be a tool for parents and grandparents to tell their own stories to their grandchildren. To find out how he went from writing for scholars to writing for kids, Andy Gomez joins us today in studio. Bienvenido, Andy. Encantado. It's a pleasure to be with you, Carlos. So I do think about this. Uh, th these are two very different ways of talking to people. Absolutely. And, and, and talk to me about that. Uh, first of all, why you thought it was important that these stories be captured and be able to be relayed to a new generation, to three generations. Well, you know, you know very well, as much as your listeners, when we talk about Cuba, particularly in South Florida, it has been dominated on one issue, and that is politics. Right. And I think we have reached a point, and I, I started to think about that when my four little grandkids started to grow up, mm. and the oldest one, as you say, asked me the same question, by the way, that I asked my parents when I was his age. Oh, really? Yeah, same question that I asked my parents. I think it's extremely important to teach my kids' generation, my daughter's generation who were born here, uh, my grandkids now, mm -hmm. the history and the culture of Cuba. But I think that also applies to any other group as well, too. To know your history. To know your history. To know you where from. your family came from. But, you know, this has been, as a cliche can say, this has been a labor of love. And I have to tell you, probably one of the hardest projects in, in all of my career in doing, <laughs> because like you said, I have never written a kid's book. Right. Uh, so it, it took a little bit over three and a half years to put it together. You know what it reminds me of is um, the scholar, Carlos Aire. I know him very well. Right? Uh, who is a professor of, of theology and history at, at Yale. At Yale uh, is well known for his scholarly work, but he's more well known for his, for his memoir, Waiting, Waiting for, for Snow in Havana. Havana. And I think about conversations that he and I had about how uh, some of his other scholars make fun of him because that's the work that got more well-known than all of his well-thought-out-and-researched scholarly things. <laughs> well, you know, you, you can go into my own personal library at home now, and, you, and, you know, I have books on the Cuban history mm -hmm. written by a number of very, very well-known uh, scholars. Uh, when I started thinking about this, uh, and, and also one of my former students that called me also one day and said, you got to do something for me to be able to explain to my kids. Right the background, the history of where my parents and their grandparents came from. And um, it, 
I would say I took about six months to start writing it. Right. And then one day, uh, I gave it to my wife, Frances, who we've been married 46 years, a math teacher, so she sees black and white. Right, okay. And I gave it to Frances, and she took a couple of days and came back to me, and she says, this is very boring. <laughs> Honestly. Listen, when a math teacher tells you that something that she's read is boring, you know you have to look at it with fresh eyes, right? She says, you got you to gotta, you gotta bring this to life. Interesting. And she was absolutely right. The next thing was in the real challenge, because I think what makes this book, and you've seen it, mm-hmm. are the illustrations. Right. The next thing was to find an illustrator that can take my words and illustrate them. And I was fortunate and honored to find Hernan Enriquez, who was famous. He was head of the Cuban art and film in, in Cuba until when he left in 1980. He's oh, going to wow. turn 83 years old. That's amazing. He's written for Nickelodeon. Uh, he is famous for the caricature cartoon that he still publishes called Gugulandia okay. on Facebook. And I sat down with Hernan and I explained to him the idea that I had. And he kind of looked at me funny as he tells the story now. Because I wanted to start the book in Miami to recognize the importance of the Cuban-American community hmm. and honor the early arrival of my parents, the Cuban-American community. But I also came to my idea that I was going to be in the Freedom Tower where I started the book, the dove or the old dove, the grandfather or Abo as my grandchildren call me. Right, because we should say that the, the book then is narrated by doves. By doves. Right. What was that decision? Why did you guys decide to say have well, these doves? La Paloma uh, seems to have so much connection, I think. Rem- I, I, I don't, know, I don't know if you recall where Bayside sits today. Mm-hmm used to be called Bayfront Park, and what we Cubans, early arrivals, called there was El Parque de las Palomas. Oh, that's so funny. The park, the, the palms, the park of, the, of the pigeons. So that's how I came dogs. up with the idea. But it was Hernandez came then with the concept of, let me take you and your grandkids, your four grandkids, the other four doves, in a time machine back to the early days of Cuba. So you guys, you have these two abuelos that are working on this question, which is why did you leave Cuba? And you both attack it. And then to add, and I think the good part, who you know very well, my my colleague, and I call my big sister, Barbara Gutierrez. Oh, shout out to Barbara. Yeah, journalist. Former former Herald uh, reporter. Right, and now one of my colleagues at the University of Miami, Mm -hmm. I convinced Barbara to edit the book. And of course, she's wonderful. And Barbara was able to take what, you know, we academic can write forever and say the same thing over and over. And Barbara was able to very much synthesize, bring it down to the point that can be simple and yet much easier to illustrate, if you will. There's a point in this which I think it all begins, which you mentioned right at the beginning, which was the question of why did we leave Cuba? But... I think it starts with you, right? You asking your father. I asked my father. I asked Cuba. my father that question. Do you it, remember how he how he responded to it in general? The same, the same, the same way that I describe it in the book. Huh? Because we lost our freedoms and liberty. But think about that. It's not only losing the freedom and liberties that we lost in Cuba, but for my kids, my grandkids' generation, and for my daughters and their husbands' generation the importance of it that that it is 
to maintain and sustain a democracy and how hard we have to work on it even here in the United States yeah which we have witnessed in the last you know 10 years with all the politics and all the rhetoric going back and forth so right. the same way that I asked the question the same way that my father answered it I answer it to my oldest grandson AJ because we lost our freedoms and liberties but I left it at that right because I designed finally the book by selecting specific times from the early colonial days to present, picking specific times to talk about, but with the idea that parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents could use the book as a guide to teach or to tell their own stories about Cuba, their own stories within the history of Cuba, which as you know, there are many. And you obviously have studied Cuba, have been a scholar on it in your career, but I'm curious about your personal connection. You have memories of Cuba oh, yeah. and leaving Cuba. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I remember like it was yesterday and I was almost five years old when Fidel came into Havana, January 8th, 1959, that my father took him to go see. You have memories of Oh, it. vividly, like it, like it was yesterday. And yet I don't remember going to Varadero. So I remember that vividly. I have memories, of course, and they have come back because I have traveled to Cuba uh, on an, you know, academically to learn and listen to people uh, for five, time, five times. So what do you remember about that day, that uh, being a child? Because I'm curious about a what a child remembers. Well, you see it in the book. Like I remember Fidel, Camilo, Uber Matos, Che Guevara on the tank. And what caught my attention was two things the long beers, and interesting, the rosaries. Since I was going to Catholic school at they, the time. They were wearing rosaries around their around necks. Around necks. You know? Hmm. I mean, Carlos, I kid you not, I'm, I'm looking at you and I feel like I, I'm seeing this vividly right in front of my face. Wow. So all those memories I tried to portray, and, and it's very clear in that page that I talk about and I put it on the bottom, I, I was there, I, I witnessed this. Do you remember what the conversations, what do you have memories of your conversations that were like before your family decided to leave? What do you remember your house being like? Well, you know, my dad, my dad worked for Coca-Cola for 45 years. Oh, okay. So um, Coca-Cola had already been before, we left three days before Bay of Pigs. Okay, which and was, remind us of the April, day. we left April, April 14th, 1961. Bay of Pigs was April 17th. Wow. My father was already under house arrest because he started to do counter-revolutionary stuff with the priests of and Los Maristas, Maris Brothers, where Maris I went to school. Sure. And he was put under house arrest. He was arrested when we got to Jose Marti. Uh, and it was a friend, of a family friend, one of the original comandantes, Mario Chanes, who passed away in exile and had been sent, was sentenced by Fidel for, I think it was 20 years in jail he spent. So uh, you have memories of your of of your dad being uh, not being around because he was in he was in prison. Uh, well, he wasn't in prison uh, in, per se, but he was in, in house arrest. House arrest, right? But when we got to Jose Marti Airport, he was taken and put in the famous, which for Cubans we know, la pecera, of the fishbowl, huh? Glass, okay. Which, um, and as a kid, I remember is that like a holding area? A holding area where they they were questioning him and. My father, uh, with his Galician influence, hmm. Gallego, strong will, 
uh, would not leave when they finally told him he could leave. Would not leave unless he could leave with uh, the statue of Our Lady of Charity that's been in our family for over 100 years in his Cuban flight. So I remember my father boarding the last person to board the plane, carrying the Cuban flag in one hand and Our Lady of Charity statue on the other. Wow, so you, everybody else boarded the plane, including you guys, and you were just waiting. Waiting for my father to be released and be allowed to. Uh, and we were very fortunate because uh, most of the Coca-Cola administrators, with the exception of Roberto Goizueta, who ended up being CEO of Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. we were transferred to Caracas, Venezuela, a very different Venezuela at the time. Wow. So we lived in Venezuela for three and a half years. So from, from Havana to Venezuela for yeah, three and a half years. for three and a half years. The subject of Cuba obviously has been the thing that, that has uh, it just has orbited your life. It's been central to so much of your work. How did that get to be that point? How did you get to that point? Very simple. I asked my father again at a very young age. I was intrigued, and I asked him because he reminded me later on in life. I asked him, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And, you know, I'm still studying that question. Oh, right. You know? Because it disrupted your childhood. You were a... Totally. Uh, totally. And, you know, the problems in Cuba, sadly, did not start in 1959. Yeah. You can trace them back. I, I would even argue it can go back to 1902. Sure. You know? So, you know, having the absence of the pillars to sustain a democracy in a free civil society were always shaky. Right. And you, and you do draw some of these... Seminal moments in the book, like what you know, where you you mentioned these specific. So, give us a, some examples. I'll give you an example. Yeah. In 1940, Cuba passes one of the most progressive constitutions of all of Latin America, very much similar to the U.S. Constitution, with separate separate uh, um, absolutely forms of government. Who do we elect as president of Cuba under that constitution? Fulgencio Batista, the guy who goes on to be think about that the last or the the. Ends up being a dictator before, before Fidel. Castro. Yeah. So you know how how you begin to think about that. Why did this happen? How did this happen? You know the uprisings in Machadato in 1993, 1933. Excuse me. You know uh, the student leadership. Uh, how Fidel came into power, which some might say was by luck, because so many before him were eliminated, which were student leaders. And there's a tradition of, of student leaders, not only in Cuba, but throughout Latin America and, and many universities. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to capture some of that. I, I, I have a page dedicated to the 1940 Constitution and Batista. But I stopped short of taking the liberty myself of interpreting the details because I think that's the role of the parents and the grandparents through their own experience in history. Because obviously everyone is gonna have of course. slightly different to very different experiences. Absolutely. And they can paint in those details. So you, it really is like these little guideposts along the way right. where you they know, can add their own my, stories. I was telling, I, I was telling uh, Leslie, your producer, that uh, Friday my youngest daughter got uh, a beautiful email from a friend uh, that her kids go to school with my grandkids. Hmm. And she said, thank your father. I'm paraphrasing. Thank your father because for the first time when I spoke to Epiphany last Friday to the little kids, 
I told him, your homework for this weekend, I want you to go and sit down with your grandparents and ask them to tell you stories. Oh, that's what a, what a hard assignment for any grandparent. And <laughs> this young lady was telling my, granddaughter, my, my daughter, Christy, that for the first time, her kids had sat down with their grandfather. And as she was writing Christy, I mean, she says, it was very emotional to see her kids with their grandfather telling them the stories, his own stories about Cuba, using my book as a guide. How wonderful. We're going to take a little break. Uh, we're speaking with Andy Gomez. He's a retired uh, former director of the University of Miami's Institute for Cuban and Cuban American Studies, and the author of a new book for kids. We'll be right back on Sundial. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and we're speaking with Andy Gomez, a retired former professor at the University of Miami who has a new book, Lessons from Abuelo, uh, and it's available at Books and Books. Um, Andy, I'm, I'm curious because you, you spent time talking with your grandkids about passing on that story of Cuba. Uh, I'm curious about holding on to your own roots. What were the discussions like with your dad that helped you um, hold on to that, that history that he brought over with you? I'll tell you one of the last memories that I had in reference to this issue. The day I received my PhD at Harvard University, my father, as he can only, he was a very simple man, but I mean, very wise. And he came close to me and he said, don't ever forget where you came from. And now this piece of paper gives you more responsibility to portray what you know to others. Wow, what a prescient thought. And I, I, I've had that in the back of my mind all the time. And I used that, Carlos, kind of like the platform to do this book. And how did you then decide to follow a career in that? Where really, did it, be, did it begin with one article, with one story? Um, did it begin with going back to Cuba the first time? You said you've been five times. No, you know, um, I started my higher education career. I spent over 35 years, and yeah, I am retired, but I'm back at the University of Miami now for the third time, which I'm very honored to be asked. This is like, you know, on Godfather 2, you get out, but you, they keep pulling you in. <laughs> what are you doing there nowadays? I am senior consultant to the president's office on Cuban affairs. And what do you do in that role? We are, we are recreating the Cuban studies program at the University of Miami around our Cuban heritage uh, collection, which I'm, I'm very proud of how much we have been able to accomplish so far. Okay, because I was curious about that. You founded, as part of preserving some of that history, you co-founded um, the, the previous program, the Institute for Cuban, Cuban and Cuban American, American studies. studies. Yeah, way back then. And so this is uh, kind of like the next, this is kind of like the next step of that. Well, that was more policy driven uh, this is more academic driven. Okay. A, a, a very big difference. What is that? What is the difference? What is, well, about that? for the first time, we have established a minor in Cuban studies at the University of Miami. Oh, interesting. We have hired, we have hired a very talented, uh, professor to hold the Bacardi chair, Dr. Michael Bustamante, which I don't like to say, but we, we kind of encourage for him to leave FIU and join the University of Miami. And Michael has done a superb job. We have a very talented young lady heading now the Cuban Heritage Collection, Amanda Moreno. And between them two and the staff, 
I've been able to work very closely with the leadership of the university, the trustees of the university, to begin to develop an academic program that addresses some of these issues that I'm talking about. Right. You know, policy is important, but policy can get tricky as well, too. Yeah, you, you don't say. You know? <laughs> policy can get tricky. Yeah. So here, here is something that what we created is uh, on sound academic grounding. I'm curious about returning to Cuba for the yeah. first time. When, when did you do that? I, the first time I went to Cuba it was an academic program, and there were 20 of us selected by the State Department. Put us away, what year? 2001. 2001. So, so you had the, you had been gone. I was Cuba. I was gone since 1961. 50 years. Yeah. Wow. So I can tell you, my legs were shaking as that plane landed on Jose Marti Tart. Was your was your were your parents still living at the time when you went back? Yeah. What was that conversation like? They did not know I was going to Cuba. Wow. We decided, my wife and I, because you know I I, I understand and I, I and I want to be very clear about mm-hmm. this. My position on Cuba is very clear. Nobody questions it. That generation of my parents left everything behind. Yeah, as did mine. We were lucky mm-hmm. because many lost their lives, whether it was the Bay of Pigs, whether it was imprisoned for 30-plus years, whether it was put against the walls and assassinated for absolutely no reason whatsoever, just opposing the regime. So that generation suffer a lot, and I respect that. They have real. They have real. Trauma. They have real yeah. reasons and trauma. Yeah, and uh, we decided. My wife and I decided. Let's not tell them. Right. First, because they might worry. Because at the same time, you might recall the whole Elian Gonzalez issue was going on here in two thousand one. Right. So it was kind of tricky. Now, what was fun was I was the only Cuban Cuban American in the group born in Cuba. So I can tell you, I mean, the Cuban students, which we basically spent time with, um, wanted to talk to me because I was born in Cuba and I was an academic. And I tell you, one of the hardest questions to answer, and maybe the simplest, I was asked by a student at the University of Havana in their aula matter, como lo dicen, their big salon, conference room yeah the big auditorium auditorium and this young lady got up in english and asked me what do you think of the cuban revolution (laughs) and i said well here we go i mean how am i gonna and of course the room is surrounded by military secret service you know hello and the thing that came to my mind very simple and i don't know i mean i mean something went off my head bombillo se me prendió my favorite American poet is Robert Frost. Hmm. And he wrote an unbelievable poem, which is my favorite, The Road Not Taken. Hmm. And I explain why the revolution eventually would, 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 would fail because it took the wrong road and never looked back. Wow, that was a pretty brave thing to say to that audience. But I have to tell you, the colonel from the Ministry of the Interior that was assigned to us came to me afterwards and says, you know, the issue with you different than others that come from South Florida is you know us very well. And rather than fighting us, you beat us with words that we cannot actually fight. Hmm. 
I mean, after that trip, they filed a complaint on me to the State Department. <laughs> so you can imagine, right? That is, uh, I, I'm sure you were. I'm sure you felt uh, a bit of pride about that. Yeah, maybe yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, no, because really, uh, I, I really, I really did not disrespect anybody mm-hmm. to try to explain the Cuban Revolution by taking a point the road not taken. People might disagree, but that was my. I could have said something else, That's but the I did. Used, yeah, you know. But I've been in Cuba, and you know, we 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 had until before COVID, we had a extended family foundation at one of the the second oldest church in Havana, Nuestra Señora La Merced, where we help African American African Cuban kids after school, after school program. Oh, and we wow. fed them. We taught them discipline. Very careful. I wrote the curriculum. Is this a is this a a, a, per, a personal passion of yeah, yours? Yeah, personal passion. Oh. Unfortunately, COVID did it in. Oh, that's I, unfortunately, COVID did it in. But in my last visit, which I visited the Merced, one of our local stations here interviewed me in Havana, and they asked me what I thought about the Cuban government, and I went to criticize the Cuban government. I talked about their violations of human rights, and I, and. On down the line, very academically, but afterwards I thought to myself, "Uh oh, let's see if I can get out of this place." Okay, and my wife was with me, but th- th- there was no problem. I'm curious if your parents ever found out about you going to Cuba. They did, and and how did that go? Well, my 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 uh, my mother was used to wherever I was. Every single day, I would call her at eight thirty in the morning, just to see how they were doing. And days have passed, and I had not called. Where, where were they living at the time? In Miami. In Miami. In Miami. So they called my wife. And what came to my wife, which was partly true, he's in Santiago. <laughs> but she didn't tell him, not Santiago. My mother was Santiago, Chile. No, I was in Santiago, Cuba. Right. There were many Santiago's. Right. Uh, she covered but her But Francis didn't go into detail. But when I returned, the first thing I did was to go to my parents' house. And I turn over my camera said, do you recognize this? And I said, nothing. I get chills, tears in their eyes. Yeah. You know, it was very emotional for them. And it, it still is emotional for me to have seen their reaction. They said, you know, we had the feeling you were there. Wow, you had the feeling you were there. Yeah, they told me, we had the feeling that you were there. I remember when uh, I went to Cuba, I was the first in my family to go. Mm-hmm. I was born here for Cuban parents. And um, it was the newspaper that was sending me, and it was sending me on a newspaper assignment. Uh, I was with the Palm Beach Post at the time. And before I left and hopped on a plane, I, I called my dad, and I said, Papi, I'm going to Cuba. And there was this long pause. And in that pause was a lifetime, was 50 years. And then he eventually said, take me with you. Yeah. And uh, I... You know, Metaphorically, so I ended up, you know, that became a title of my book later, and uh, yeah, I know. And, and I wonder how much of that trip after you guys came home and you talked about it, how much did that do? What did that do you to your relationship with your father? I think not, not, not only my father, my mother strengthened it because I was able then to sit down with them again, and they were able to tell me more stories that they had not told me as I was growing up, like my father. One, one day as he worked in, in the Coca-Cola Havana, right down the street in, uh, in La Vibora, uh, where the plant still is, it, 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 before it was confiscated, Che Guevara showed up in a Jeep with a truck, and they were coming to pick up bottles of Coke. 
Wow. And refrigerator. What a memory. Not buy them, but take them. Yeah. And my father told me how arrogant Che Guevara had been. And, you know, you, you had no choice. You, you give it to them or their consequences to a great extent. But, you know. Um, they were witnesses to history, your, your parents. I mean, they were, they were yeah. first, and so were you, first person witnesses oh, yeah. to, to. Look, another, uh, another experience that I have is uh, when Camilo Cienfuegos so-called disappear, which now history has proved that he never disappeared. Uh, Camilo Cienfuegos disappeared and everybody took to the Malecón in Havana to throw flowers. I remember throwing flowers over the Malecón. Because it, it was his plane had disappeared. His right? plane Give had disappeared the in the Havana Bay, in Havana, which eventually what had happened was that Camilo had been sent, as you might recall, Camilo had been sent to come away to see Uber Matos because Uber had offered to resign his command. And he and Fidel sent him to arrest Uber Matos. But Uber Matos and Camilo were very close. And Camilo was returning back to Havana uh, without Uber Matos. And I won't go into a lot of the details, but history has proven that his plane was diverted, Camilo Sinfogo's plane was diverted to southern Cuba, and when he arrived, he, his assistant, and the pilot were assassinated. Wow. And th- these are a lot of things that I've not, I've not read. No. I've not read it. I have not seen No, no, no. But I, for someone who spent his career looking into Cuba yeah. and researching, yeah. you find out many of these pieces uh, below the surface. Well, you find many pieces. You talk to people and agencies that can, you know, have analyze these issues you know some of the stuff is still remains classified some have been declassified so and we should say these were some of the, the original orchestrators of the cuban revolution camilo Cienfuegos. for, for uh, the reader the audience that doesn't know camilo Cienfuegos. camilo Cienfuegos was one of the original commandantes and very popular which was a threat to fidel's power and the other gentleman Uber Matos. And Uber Matos who... Uber Matos was one of the original commandantes too. Highly respected. He spent 30 years in jail. And I'll tell you, I spent years before he passed away going to Uber Matos' house. Once a month drinking Cuban coffee. And he would tell me stories you're not going to find in any books. Wow. Well, these are more stories that we want to hear, but we're going to take a little break. We've been speaking with Andy Gomez, a retired... um, uh, retired former uh, University of Miami professor who keeps getting roped back in who recently has written a new book Lessons from Abuelo. We'll be back on Sundown in just a minute. back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and we're back with Andy Gomez, a retired professor and Cuba scholar. Uh, Andy, so much of the question at the center has always been, why did you leave Cuba? And I'm curious, since you've been back, have you gone back with any of your own family? No. And well, yes, my wife. And But any of your children? or, or... No, and, 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 and we've talked about it. The, the, uh, the conditions are still not right. Uh, we would like to take our daughters, our son-in-laws, and our, our grandkids as part of exploring the history uh, of the family, if you will. Uh, you know, the, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a very powerful history on, on my wife's side of the family, if I take a minute to tell you. Please. Uh, and when uh, Fidel Castro and his commandantes attacked the Moncada in July 26, 1953, you might recall they failed, and Fidel, Raul, and some others escaped to the hills, and they were captured couple of days later, the Archbishop 
of Santiago de Cuba at that time, many say saved their lives because he convinced Batista soldiers not to bring him to Moncada, which most likely they would have been assassinated, but to take him to the public jail and later on they were put in prison. The Archbishop of Santiago de Cuba was Enrique Perez Cerantes, who happens to be my wife's great-granduncle. She's oh a Cerantes. Wow. And in her family, they never spoke of this issue. Even though Enrique Perez Cerantes issued the first letter from a Catholic prelate inside the island condemning the revolution and Fidel Castro, which was read a Sunday in the early days across Cuba. So Enrique Perez Arantes, you know, is, is a prominent figure in, in our family as well, too. Why is this an issue that, that it was never really spoken about? Well, because family? a lot of people say, well, he saved Fidel and Raul Castro's life. Well, as a good Catholic, he thought he was doing something right. And knowing that if they went to Moncada, they would have been assassinated. Maybe that they deserve to have a, a a trial. So, what was it like going to the island with your wife, who also has this very obviously strong connection and strong history? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what was funny. I'm used to I'm used to having cameras poked at me mm-hmm. when I anywhere I arrive at Cuba. I mean, I've, I've been doing it for so many years. Sure. For this trip, it was kind of funny. It was her. All the cameras were at her because it was Serantes. And I turned to her and said, "You know, I, I'll be honest with you." If Raul Castro invites you to dinner, you're, I'm not going. <laughs> wow. That's a question that you really had to wrestle with, right? I, I, I'm like, not going. This could happen. I'm not going. I'm not going. I'll I, I tell you, in one of my trips for Pope Benedict's visit, uh, I was fortunate enough to be given uh, by Cardinal Sharno Malley from Boston, who was on the trip, VIP ticket. So I sat on the second row. I'll never forget the feelings that went through my body when Raul Castro and all the people that I have studied and known crossed right in front of me. I actually had to reframe myself for saying something. Wow, these these figures that you saw come into Havana uh, as a little boy, and here they are 50, 50, 60 years later. Yeah, and, and the damage that they have done to the Cuban people. The destruction, I mean, you, you go to Cuba, Cuba's a third world country, outside Haiti, probably the poorest country in all of Latin America. Uh, it's very sad. It, it is very sad to see the infrastructure of Cuba just completely falling apart. Uh, the, the challenges that you see with the young people, now they, they have access to the internet, and as they tell me, they feel this psychological trauma because what they were so-called indoctrinated in an ideology that very few support in the island, now they find the contradictions Hmm. to it, you know, and how much they have been missing. There's this line in, in part of your bio that talks about really what you focus a lot of your work on was quote, the ideological and psychological reconstruction of human values and attitudes in a post-Castro Cuba. Tell me about that a little bit, because do you feel that, that, that a, a, a current Castro Cuba has, has, has affected those? You have roughly almost 11 million people in Cuba today. Nine million of those were born after 1959. That's, this is all they've seen. 
after my first trip to Cuba, I was on sabbatical and I went to East and Central Europe. I wanted to see after the fall of the Iron Curtain how things were going. This would have been about what year? Mm, well, I went to Cuba 2001, so this must have been late 2001, early 2002. Okay. So I went through East and Central Europe. And of course, their experience is very different. But what I came to the realization very quickly is that I would say it would be easier to change the political and economic system of Cuba than to change people's mind when change doesn't have a clear definition yet. Hmm. Think about this. Depending where you are in the spectrum of society or the power or the inner circle, change can be positive or change can be negative, even including for those inside the regime. Mm -hmm. So to me, how do you change people's mind to support something different, not knowing whether it's gonna benefit them or not? And this is why you see, in my opinion, so many people leaving the island because the whole movement, and I, and I remember a youngster that I, I, I tried to stay in touch with many young people on the island. Mm -hmm. uh, she told me, you know, Andy, you guys in Miami don't understand. Patria y vida is more about vida than patria. We don't know how to put our country together again. We don't have those tools, but vida, we don't have a vida, we don't have a life. That's why our generation wants to leave and be able to start over. I'm curious about what you said about what it would take for conditions to go with your own family. What, 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 would, what is the, the situation like where you would imagine going with your own grandkids and not just telling them the history of Cuba, but telling them and showing them? Well, let me, let, let, let me tell you, every, every friend, colleague, family member that have asked me about going to Cuba, mm -hmm. psychologically, you have to prepare for it. Not only reading, but going into a country that you might have left when you were very long, and it's not what it was. Yep. Um, many people, I tell you, I spent the first day when I, I went crying, and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I could not go to sleep. Yeah. I spent the whole night crying because I saw something that it was very different when I was a little boy. And I was trying to find a definition for it. And, and talking to university students, I realized that the challenges moving forward was how do we empower those people to try to bring change from within? Because, you know, we talk about and, and, and there's some good arguments. I'm not going to say they're not. We talk about exporting our values everywhere. I think we have learned that exporting American democracy doesn't work in many parts of the world. Right. It has not been uh, incredibly successful. It, 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 it just doesn't work. <clears throat> I, I, I'm curious when we talk about the, those children. I'm curious about your own grandchildren. How have they responded to having this book to answer the question that you got, which was, why did you leave Cuba? Oh, they keep asking, they love it. Really, so Yeah, they're very engaged, especially the two oldest ones. You know, nine, AJ's nine, Henry is eight and a half, and the two little ones are five, so they get it less. But the two oldest ones, uh, they ask very good questions. What is that, what kind of questions? What, what has that been like? Uh, what was my childhood like in Cuba? 
uh, what was it like when I went back? You know, it was funny because when they were younger, they would identify and they were, you were asking, so who are the leaders in Cuba? And they would go like, you know, they would point it to their faces and say, the guys are with the beer. Oh, I said, well, l l let's clarify that. So since an early age, and of course, my house, my, 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 my office that my wife allows me is covered <laughs> with, you know, memories, including a picture of my brother and I last Christmas in Havana. Oh, wow. And, you know, 1960, dressed as milicianos. Wow. In green fatigues. Because in front of a Christmas tree. How old were you at the time? Would you have been? Nah, I was five and a half, almost six. Wow. And my brother's three years younger. And how do you talk about that with your grandkids? Well, I think I, I think you have to put it into perspective. And again, you have to take into consideration the age group, for example. Right. Friday, I took the opportunity knowing that the third grade, third grade class that was there present, think about this, which I think is wonderful. The third grade class is learning the American Constitution. So I took that opportunity to talk about, in the book I talk, our, talk about our freedoms and liberties were taken away. Mm -hmm. You need to explore within the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, what freedom of speech, what liberties mean, and how hard we have to work to maintain it and sustain it. Because that's one of the reasons I had to leave, my parents had to leave, and most of the Cubans in Miami had to leave. There's also the sustaining of culture, right? Oh, yeah. Like my, my, uh, my, my daughters, who are now, you know, second generation born in America, uh, they consider themselves they say, "Oh, I'm I'm Cuban, and my background is Cuban." And it's like you're you're three generations from Cuban. How do your How do your grandkids identify? Do they Do they identify at all with their Cuban culture? Do they? I think they it? do. I think the two oldest do. Uh, what I find interesting is, of course, because of my daughters being around me and my wife, they probably know a little bit more Cuba, and my son-in-laws know a little bit more Cuba. But um, most of their friends uh, know very little. And now they have come forward and started purchasing the book because they want to recapture that history, that culture, and have the grandparents or the parents of my, of my daughter's friends begin to tell a story. I think it's extremely important. I think we reached that time, Carlos. Uh, I'm not saying, let's, let's for, let's not, I'm not saying forget the politics. No, 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 no. And we need to continue to fight for the freedoms and the human rights that the Cuban people deserve. But I think we also need to, this is the time we need to start teaching our kids, our grandkids, about our history, about our culture, the good and the bad. Embracing both sides of it. Absolutely. And that, you stay away from that specifically in the book. Yes, and, I do. And that was by design. Absolutely. And so how do you, how do you hope that people will use it then? When, when it comes to discussing politics? Do you think that it'll spark that's up, those? That's up to them. Mm. That's up to them. I think that, I hope they discuss it from every angle. I mean, the, the, what, what has fascinated me about this book is interesting. In the Cuban-American community, I have not received any criticism. Mm. I have had conservative friends, I have had liberal friends buy it and have the same reaction, which to me has been very refreshing. 
I was going to say that's pr- probably not uh, not what you got when you were dealing in other areas of of. Uh, no, I mean, and, and, and you know, anytime you deal with Cuba, you you know, you you open yourself to criticism, but that's that's you know, in academia, that's the discourse that you have. You know, freedom of speech. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. You know, and that's even that's how I taught my courses. You know, my 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 intent with my students was not to pass my own personal beliefs unless they ask, but to present the facts and why these facts happen and what they led to. Talk to me a little bit about um, what what stories then you were able to tell your grandkids, stuff that, things that you hadn't thought about in a while that elicited when they asked you about your childhood in Cuba. Did anything come out then that, that you... School, uh, I remember my first communion like it was yesterday, since it was rushed before we left. Oh, you quickly got your communion before you left? Yeah, yeah, a couple of weeks before we left. Uh, Cardinal Artiaga, and Ortega Artiaga, and, and again, I remember like it was yesterday. Uh, so I've been able to uh, pull out those books. Interesting enough, in my pre-K class in Cuba, in Havana, in the, in the Maris Brothers, my grandkids' pediatrician was my class. Really? Yeah. And it goes to show how many how many connections because, are still because exist. I have the yearbook. Yeah. You know, and, and he was in my class. It's interesting how many of those connections And his daughters went to school with my daughters at Lourdes Academy here in South Florida. Are they surprised to see those things? The the yeah. connection Oh, that... very much. Yeah. I mean, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, I mean it, it's I think it, it, what what intrigues them is to see me as a little boy and what those experiences were during those times. Right. And that's what you hope that this book will do is it'll it'll allow them to, your grandkids to connect with you. Oh, well, not only me. I, I'm just hoping that it helps families reconnect their own memories within Cuban history. Because there's so many stories that have not been told even within the family. Sometimes because they're painful. And I understand that. Sometimes because life is too busy and we haven't had the chance. But I think it's so important for grandparents to engage their grandkids or parents to engage their own kids and talk about this issue. I mean, I, I, I had a blast talking to pre-K through fourth grade last Friday and engaging them. I mean, and they were extremely engaged. Were there moments that, that this drew out for you, memories that it drew out for you, that you hadn't thought about in a long time. All the time, all the time, all the time. And in writing the book particularly, and I tried to kind of distance myself from trying to put in my own personal belief. And Barbara was very good at editing those parts, you know? And Barbara and I went back and forth. No, you need to do this. No, I don't want to do this. And I'll tell you, she was 99% of the time right. As good as, <laughs> as editor, editors most often as are. As most editors are. And and so you were able to also then add your own stories and telling your own children using this book as yourself as a guide. To- oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think for me the book gives me the opportunity to tell stories to my daughters, to my son-in-laws, not just my grandkids, of stories that you know I experience not only in Cuba but growing up. Uh, Carlos, I remember, and again we came from Venezuela to Miami, my father was transferred in 1965. I remember as a little boy walking through Little Havana when we were looking for apartments and there were signs 
no dogs, no blacks, no Cubans. And I would ask my dad, what does that mean? And with this, you've had, you've had the opportunity to tell, to, to explain these things to another generation and also explaining how much things have changed for them and around them. Absolutely. And be able to embrace everybody and treat everybody with respect and dignity. But more important, as I told the kids on Friday, knowing about your own history allows you to have respect for others that come from other parts of the world. And on that, we're going to have to end. Uh, the book is by Andy Gomez, a retired professor and a Cuba scholar. Uh, the book is Lessons from Abuelo, and it's available at Books and Books. Thank you, Andy. Carlos, it's been us. a privilege to be with you. Thank you. And that's Sundial for Wednesday, February 1st. Leslie Obaye-Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprey-Cohen. And our digital editor is Matt Sanchez. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundal's engineer. Our theme music, music is by Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we're joined by Colombian-American writer Patricia Engel. Her new book, The Faraway World, is a collection of harrowing short stories set in the Americas. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.